This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. We have crossed the Red Sea. It parted. It, it has swallowed us. It has swallowed the Egyptians up behind us. I am Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-host, Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. And senior writer, Leah Leibovitz. We have raised our staff and smitten all other podcasts. Yeah, we've been, we've been we smited them. <laughs> they have done been smoten. Our Jews of the Week today are fashion designer and handbag icon, Rebecca Minkoff, and author Moriel Rothman Zecker. And our Gentile of the Week, though Jewishly named, is Gretchen Rubin, who of course is famous for her book on happiness and for her podcast. And she is going to be here to talk about creating outer order to restore inner calm. Jewishly named, but she writes about happiness, so you know, so you're not <laughs> Jewish. Calm and order. <laughs> That's the right. fact that she had to make a lifetime project out of seeking happiness okay. actually <laughs> is kind of Quite Jewish. Jewish. Like, Gretchen, we call it therapy. <laughs> Don't be fancy. Uh, how was everyone's uh, pa- Passover? Pesach, Passover. Stephanie, how was... Uh, how was Passover uh, by you? <laughs> by you. By um, you. My Passover was great. I actually ended up going down to Florida. Florida, as, it's pronou- as we pronounce it. Ended up spending some time with my parents down in Florida after the Seders. And it was really, really fun. And I got to go to Miami to the Betsy Hotel where we were doing an event for the 100 Most Jewish Foods book. Mm-hmm. And it was really, really fun. And this woman came up to me and she said, I emailed you a few years back. My mother was in the camps with your father's mother. And I remembered who she was. And, and she didn't mean like Camp Ramah. No, 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 no. No, no, no. She meant the camps. So, yes, yeah, so this woman, Diane Schillett, came up to me and she had, we had corresponded a few years back. And I remember her. And the craziest thing is that her husband is from Forest Hills, where my father is from and grew up. And her, her future husband basically uh, shared a bar mitzvah with my uncle so when her like they had parents, the same date same, at, date, same, the same Torah portion shared uh-huh. did everything together when her parents met her future in-laws they said we know one person you know we only know one family from Forest Hills and it's the Butniks and they were like oh our son had his bar mitzvah with the older son so basically her when she her parents have been to, were at her husband's bar mitzvah without realizing it that is and, so, and I said you know my dad's right over there you guys should talk I and it was like the I craziest need, thing I feel like you need an, like a map to follow this <laughs> <I know. laughs> it's like so Bergen Belsen and then to Forest Hills to Miami like, to Miami so you talked about a hundred Jewish foods I cooked a hundred Jewish foods doing the same thing that every every freaking year it's like this year we will not host two satyrs because it's crazy and sadistic and then it's like March like what are we doing this year it's like are we hosting yeah we're hosting again two nights who was your champion guest this Ooh, year over question. the two nights who won the guest off of all of the guests you had who was the best you know what the reason the fact that i can't say that there was one person that stood out it was like an it was like a jim jarmusch movie it was an ensemble cast that worked together seamlessly there was coffee there were cigarettes there were coffee cigarettes <laughs> but that's a credit to you right because you curated the guest list i i worked hard on that do you do uh, seating too oh my lord do i do so seating. this is yeah <laughs> the le- seating is like a nuclear plant we left blueprint. the seating to clara our eight-year-old who um so the kids always make little place cards yeah they, of course they draw and illustrate the little i still do that place cards but this year we actually left the seating arrangement to clara who did a really really lovely job both nights she did a really good job and um I actually am going to I'm going to name I'm going to name a champion guest. Oh, wow. Uh, I'm going to this is no disrespect to the other guests. 
I think the champion guest was Arnold Gorlick, who has been on our show, who oh, talk, wow. talking about his uh, his father's appetizing store in Brooklyn. He was on oh. our Father's Day episode. He has the movie theater? And he has the movie theater. And he always brings, uh, first of all, he and Anna, my five-year-old, are very, very close. And so Anna sat next to him and just hugged him the whole time. And Arnold's like a 65-year-old, like burly bearded. He's, he, you know, it's what you're going to look like in, right. you know, in, in 20 years. Inshallah. Yeah. And uh, Anna just sits next to him and just clings to him. And she likes it when he makes hot chocolate. Sometimes we stop by his house and he makes Anna hot chocolate. So he brings his espresso machine to steam milk after the Seder for her. So, and he brings his like special cocoa powder, his artisanal cocoa. And so he comes with a, his like hot chocolate that's set. That's And when the Seder's over and we're kind of done with the singing and maybe we're waiting for Elijah, he makes um, hot chocolates for the table. But starts with Anna and he gives her whipped cream and everything. It's very, it's a very sweet, beautiful uh, friendship. But we had a great time. Um, next year, I I have, I'm here to announce that I have accepted the invitation of uh, Camp Ramah in Ojai, California, which does a Passover family camp. I'm going to be a scholar in residence. Uh, the whole mishpucha is going to fly to You're LA. We're going to pass over there. We're going to pass on over the central flyover zone straight into the mountains outside of LA. And we're going to camp out there for, uh, I mean, they have bunks. It's not actually camping out, but we're going to, uh, have the Ramah Ojai experience. And Rebecca, of course, is a Ramah camp, uh, a camp Ramah of New England alumnus. We, as we know. And Dave Ote. And she's like, Dad, can I can I do oh can I do Ramah California? It's like, yeah, you'll see how can they I roll. Cheat in one Ramah with another Ramah? You'll see how they roll Cali style. Um and of course, speaking of Southern California, uh, when we're in Ojai, we will not be so far removed, geographically speaking, from Poway, California, which in our News of the Jews, we note uh, was the site of the shooting at the Chabad house there and the murder of one of their uh, congregants. Um, you know, we were talking about this last night on our phone call, guys. We're saying, do we talk about this? You know, do we not talk about it? I mean, you know, in one sense, to be perfectly frank, it doesn't feel like it's striking any of us the way Pittsburgh did. And is that because... Is one dead, not 11? Is it because we're a little inured to it? I, you know, we, we don't want to give the show over to it and we're not going to give the show over to it. We're going to have a fun, great, laughy show. But but what, what's to be said before we move on to, to utter trivia? I think it's really awful. And it's, it is weird because this one, I, it feels a little bit more numbing. Right. Like the Pittsburgh was shocking. The enormity of it. Um, this is really awful. But there is a way in which I think the thing that freaked me out when it happened was like oh this is just a thing that happens now this is like you know pittsburgh sort of like broke through something in me where it was just horrifically shocking and the fact that this wasn't as shocking is very shock is upsetting is deeply disturbing to me i was just like oh uh, a synagogue was shot up okay all right that's what happens now and here's another critical difference between this and pittsburgh there was a congregant present with a firearm who as soon as shit started going down rose to the occasion and it had a very different outcome. And I have to tell you, I'm not saying this for effect or or for laughs. I am dumbfounded by why it is so incredibly difficult for so many Jews to understand this clear as day proposition. 41% of non-Jewish households in America have guns. 13% of Jewish households in America have guns. And then, you know, we're, we're 60% of all violent hate crimes. Uh, I say this without an, an, an ounce of provocation. I say it what I truly believe. Every Jew has to be armed right now. I, I don't want that to be the answer. I mean, look, I think I think what actually is the case is that the, the guy's gun jammed and that stopped a lot more bloodshed from occurring. I, I don't know what the answer is. I don't 
you know, Carly Pildes had a great piece in Tablet about how her daughter is now going to only know an era in which there are guards outside of synagogues, which mm-hmm. I feel like actually is sort of what I knew, um, not necessarily on Long Island growing up, but like here in New York, there's usually police presence outside of synagogues on all the high holidays, which is, you know, as See, to me, knows, that's, that's unconscionable. Uh, first of to all, outsource. Because, because if someone actually wants to stop for so, so many reasons, first of all, if someone really wants to shoot up a synagogue, you know, and off duty cop standing outside with his piece is not going to stop anyone in anything. Number one. Number two, why are you outsourcing your own defense? First of all, why are you living in fear? Why are you posting guards outside of your door? The door of a synagogue of any place of worship should always be open to anyone who wants to come in. And anyone who comes in should know that inside are Jews who are not afraid and are armed and are trained to protect themselves. This is what normal people do. You know, we built an entire country based on the premise that we could take care of ourselves. It's working kind of okay. We produce Netta and Gal Gadot. Like it's doing okay. I thought you meant America. I thought you were talking about America. Look at that. Patriotism. America used to be that place too. Wait, did it used to be great? It used to be great. Can, can I say that it used to be great? And now at Middlebury College, in Yay. other news of the Jews, we have a chemistry professor whose final exam question <laughs> asks the ask. I'm sorry. I it's already funny. <laughs> His final exam question asks students to calculate the lethal dose of the poisonous gas used in Nazi gas chambers during the Holocaust. It was like, how many parts per whatever do you need to kill Jews? Um the college has put him on leave uh, pending an investigation into his poor judgment. He issued an apology saying, I'm a dumb fuck. And <laughs> I'm really, I mean, well, I have to say, now, you know me, guys. Like, I am not, I, I think people, I'm all for humor. I want to err on the side of, of we should be able to tell jokes that push the line. I thought that that Quaker teacher, the Jewish Quaker teacher who uh, did the, the, Sig Heil. the Sig Heil clearly was making fun of Nazis not being one and should still have his job at Friends Seminary, um, a cesspool of feckless and cowardly administrators. Um, but this one, it's like there's really nothing funny about yeah, an exam no. question. It's like calculate how to kill Jews. Well, their, their math question was if two trains leave Auschwitz, <laughs> one is going this many miles an hour. You know, when you have those dreams that it's like the final exam that you're taking and you, you're not prepared, you haven't seen the classroom, you like don't know where you are. <laughs> This is actually like going to compound my nightmares. Like yeah. The questions are all about the you Holocaust. Show up, final exam. It's about how many Jews you have to kill. You haven't studied. Nobody remembers You're you. Naked. You're naked. <laughs> and the exam question is about the murder of your grandparents. Um, but things are much happier over in sunny Israel, except that Bar Raffaele is not paying her taxes. The Israeli supermodel, uh, Bar Raffaele, will have to pay tens of millions of shekels. Shekies. Shekies. Um, in, uh, Shek it off. In taxes that she didn't pay in 2009, 2010, years that she claimed she didn't owe taxes because she was shacked up in the United States with Leonardo DiCaprio. The government, Netanyahu's government, has found out she was not as shacked up as she claimed to be, uh, except maybe in a penthouse in Tel Aviv and has to pay her taxes. I would just like to say, as one of the two American citizens in this room, you can't be using Leo DiCaprio to to shirk your taxes. Liel. It's, it's, it's a good old Leo DiCaprio Would you defense. go tell her that, please, Liel? Just, if I had a shekel for every time <laughs> I said I was with Leo and I don't have to pay anything. Uh, the funny thing, though, is that the Wait, same... that's not the funny thing? No, that's not <laughs> that's the funny not, thing. That's the funny See, thing. See, this is the genius of Israel. That is not the funny thing. The funny thing is that the same government that is hounding her for uh, avoiding taxes or evading taxes is also 
employing her as the host of the Eurovision Song Contest. So basically, the conversation is like, Alobar <laughs> uh, is government. Okay, so first of all, uh, you owe 10 million shekel. Second of all, here's a check for 10 million shekel for hosting Eurovision. <laughs> like, guys. Wait, the really funny thing is the Eurovision Song Contest is government run. <laughs> like, what government department runs Eurovision? The, the Mossad. <laughs> I they also, brought Madonna to play. That's kind of oh cute. My God. I like the baby who's like, you know what I'm going to do to help get the curry favor in the, you know, in the viewpoint of everyone in the entire world after all these corruption things. I'm going to go after Bar Raffaelli, one of the, the top two Israeli exports to the world. Doesn't she yeah. know that in America she could just incorporate as Amazon and pay zero taxes? That's what right. is she even what is she even doing in Israel? Gal Gadot sleep with one eye open. <laughs> She should move here and, like the white nationalists who stormed politics and prose bookstore, proclaim this land is our land. Uh, maybe you guys saw the story, uh, politics and prose, the um – what does one say about it? Politics and prose is basically like the place to go on your book tour when you're in D.C. You get like the nice, a nice, educated, lefty crowd of yep. uh, people. That's like, a, you know, one of the great bookstores in this country. It's a bookstore where people actually buy the book. Yes. And, and read it. Is, it That's is right. to bookstores what Buttigieg is to presidential candidates. That's right. That's right. And uh, it speaks all those languages <laughs> uh, just enough to talk to reporters in. That's right. Uh, and there was they had a talk there by Jonathan Metzl, who's a sociologist at Vanderbilt University. He was talking about a book on uh, whiteness. It's called Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. And um, a bunch of white nationalists who claim, according to some reports, to be part of Identity Europa. Uh, they are far-right identitarians. Stormed in. They went to the front of the room. You can see this on YouTube. And got in a line. And they didn't sing This Land is Our Land or This Land is – but they chanted it. I wish I could have been part of that like prep meetings. Like, guys, 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 there is a writer out there who claims we're dumb fucks. You know what we're going to do? We're going <laughs> to prove him wrong. We're going to go sing the songs of a left wing. Of a Stalinist. Right. Of a, and oh, um, I also love the idea that like they're looking for an action to do. They're looking like to to make a move. And so they go on the web and they, they key in whiteness and they want to do something in Washington, D.C. And they find oh, that God. like there's this place called politics. They, they decide we're going to storm politics They're like, and what's prose? <laughs> White nationalists keeping Woody Guthrie's lyrics alive since 2019. This book story is my bookstore. <laughs> From the general nonfiction to the cookbook section. <laughs> From self-help and parenting to young adults. This land was made for you and me. So excited. We are here with Rebecca Minkoff. She's the founder and designer behind the brand Rebecca Minkoff. She's one of the biggest names in fashion and her handbags, jewelry and dresses are staples on the red carpet and the streets of, you know, all cities. Welcome, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. I want to say you're very well named. That's my eldest daughter's name, Rebecca. Oh. And before we get into meaningful stuff like your work and your career and all that, I'm going to ask Stephanie and Leal to just give us 30 seconds on Rebecca. Okay. There are not a lot of Rebeccas anymore. Like the schoolyard is filled with Mackenzie's and Madison's. Yes. But it's kind of like you're the, you and my daughter, I think are the last of the Rebeccas. Well, I was supposed to be Molly and then they got a dog and they named her Molly. And then they're like, yeah, we'll just name her Rebecca. So I got lucky. You got lucky. Yeah. And before we leave the topic. Yeah, Molly Minkoff. I don't know. <laughs> right? Sounds like much. a porn star, right? Yes. Yeah. No, that's like you know, <laughs> a certain kind of fetish porn. What's what, what do you go with for nicknames? Becky. You're a Becky? I'm just Becky most of the time. I think Rebecca should start going by Reb. Oh. Uh, 
like, like, but like, like Reb, like, like Rabbi. Mm-hmm. Sounds like. That, oh. that would be cool. Reb Minkoff. I, I can't not mention that my grandmother, Rebecca, was known as Ribs all of her life to some really? of her old friends. When she was very young, she was she was a relatively zoftic older woman. But apparently as a teenager, she'd been skinny. Can I say Ribs Minkoff? And ribs she Minkoff. is someone who runs like gambling on like the Northeast. We... Welcome to Ribs Minkoff. <laughs> <laughs> Barbecue. So, Rebecca, yes. let's start from the beginning. Yes. Is it true you sewed your own bat mitzvah dress? I did. I did sew it. I, um, if you want to know the real reasons why I did that, I was a double A in my chest size, so I was not ribs. <laughs> and, you know, when you're coming of age and you like boys, you got to, you know, I don't know. I wanted to impress them. So I was like, I need a lower cut dress than what they're mm. offering. So I was like, I'm going to sew it. And how had you learned to sew? Was that family... I felt, uh, no, it was called my mom being cheap. So uh, I wanted a dress when I was eight. She was like, I won't buy it for you, but I'll teach you how to sew. So she taught me how to sew, and I just fell in love with the idea that I could create something out of nothing. So I took classes twice a week uh, with a woman who was a designer from New York, moved to Florida, and she taught me how to sew, and that's hence my bat mitzvah dress, and then continuing on. So now you and your brother run this company together, right? We do, yes. Yuri? Yes. What's it like working with him? Uh, it's great. And then sometimes it's bad because you fight like brother and sister. But for the most part, uh, I definitely wouldn't be here without him because when when I started, I did not have a business bone in my body. And he was really helpful in figuring out all that. So what's the origin story there of your of your company? The origin story is I moved here at 18 with two suitcases, flew into Islip again, cheap mom, um, lived with my a friend at Fordham University, he would sneak me in, then lived with my cousin in her playroom, worked for designer, got hired, worked for him for three years, and then decided that I couldn't just work for someone else. So on the side, I started, you know, doing t-shirts and sewing everything myself and hustling around the Lower East Side back when there were boutiques there. And um, after 9-11, the CEO said, you know what you're doing? Go do it. You're fired. Love you. And... Uh, <laughs> You're fired. Love you. Love you. Love you. Uh, I had some moderate success on Daily Candy. Do you remember Daily Candy? Yeah, have blessed I look at memory. You, the one woman in the room. Um, like now and later's? Gobstoppers? What's the, that? That's it was where like, my mind it was, went. It was pre-social media, mm-hmm. and it was just the one email of the hottest, newest, latest. Mm-hmm. And at the time, it had the power to build huge brands. It was like Oprah and that. Gotcha. Um, and so I was on Daily Candy. That took off. And I called my, bro- my dad and I was like, all right, finally, I'm not a loser, but I need to borrow some money to make the next production run. And he's like, no, call your brother. So that's kind of how he started. Well, what was he doing at the time? He had a software company. Oh. He was living a great life in Florida. Nobody lives a great life in Florida, let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it definitely wasn't as colorful as now that he, his okay. life here. So the Jewish dad of me has to ask, so did you skip college? I did. Yeah. And it was that a good, do you, like. If your kids, you have kids, right? I told them they're not going to college. Really? Yeah. Can I tell you seriously how incredibly happy that makes yeah, me? Liel's very anti-college. That is 1,000%. Can we high five? Okay. High so, five. so see, smart, successful Jews not going to college. That's the thing. So, okay, Dr. Leibowitz. So, <laughs> this yeah. is Mr. P. Liel Leibowitz, PhD. So, okay, so uh, this is you fascinating. You want to unpack this? Yeah, I do want to unpack okay. this because I'm, I'm getting more education skeptical, formal education skeptical myself. And, I mean, what was... So what, why, if your, your kids say to you, mom, why shouldn't we go to college? What do you say? I'm going to say, if you want to be a doctor or a lawyer, or it's a skill that you have to be certified to do, then you got to go. Fine. Right. And you're going to pay for it yourself. Just like that was the deal offered to me. If I wanted to go to college, I had to pay for it myself. 
Uh, and if you don't know what you want to do in life, guess what? You don't get to go to college to have those four years of drinking and partying right. to figure it out. Fucking around to take you know classes in gender studies and then be $150,000 in debt. Nope. This no, is not happening. happening. Yeah. My brother doesn't either. How do you learn software programming? He wasn't programming. He was running the business. So how so, do you learn that? <laughs> <laughs> well, fun story. My mom was a nurse and she had like one patient uh, stay at like a... It's not a stay-at-home service. It's like a in home in, care. Home mm-hmm. care, and he's like, I think I can figure out how to make this a bigger business for you guys. So he rented a small office. He got her clients. So I don't know. He just kind of learned the business, and he, they still have it. So they have a big health clinic in Florida. Unbelievable. So. Very believable. You know what it was? We had a ledger when we were growing up, and we had to earn everything we wanted. And my mom would keep this ledger of like how much we earned and what we did. I think it was like that early. Like it's like you were well raised. You were actually raised by real people with values. <laughs> yes, I hated it, but now it served me well. <laughs> you still close to your parents? Very close. That's awesome. Very close. Yeah, that's awesome. So, what is your favorite thing that you've designed over the years? Sometimes I feel like I have to say the bag. You know, the bag that started it all, because that's why I'm here. The morning um, after bag. The morning after bag. What is that? You've seen it. I know Wait. I've seen it, but what is it? So. I was 25. Paris and Nicole Richie were like the thing. I remember that. And I thought it was unfair that no one was propositioning me to stay out all night. (laughs) So I was like, let me design a bag and call it the morning after bag in my fantasy land that I like got to go out all night. I got to meet someone. They wanted to take me home. Bottle service. Table dancing. Totally. Yeah. But the interesting thing I don't about, know about table dancing, you just took that too far. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the interesting thing about the morning after bag is like it's small enough that you could take it out. You could. But it also the genius of it is actually you could put a lot of things in it. Yes. And so I feel like there's something about that design and about a lot of what you do that is actually fashion first, but functionality is sort of right behind there for like a modern woman. Totally. So I have a very serious question for you because I, I need your help. Figuring something I've never figured out. No man purse. I don't understand. I, I really fundamentally don't understand the purse. Like my instinct is to carry as little as I humanly can yes. on me. Yes. What's up? Like what is this? What do we zen? need in there? No, what what is the Zen of designing it? Like how do you think about designing purses? I think for a woman, I can't speak for all women, it is the outfit completer. I think it's just a nice way to just set yourself apart. And then I obviously think a lot about functionality. So does it have the right pockets? Does it convert? Is it a crossbody? Is it a purse? Could it be a clutch? When, I think, when you think about the right pockets, though, what do you imagine goes in there? Like, what do you imagine your average... You need your cell phone, your Metro card, your lipstick, your... What else? Like, if you're going to bring sunglasses, you got the glasses case. Like, there's a lot of stuff See, you to need me, to that have. Chapstick, a, hand in a, in sanitizer. Like yeah, that, but then you, you walk fit. down the street with your pants sagging in these two big lumps, mm-hmm. and then you sit down and you hurt your back because you're uneven or you break your phone like my husband does. Mm. So a person avoids all that. I'm not going to say who, but a male relative close to me went Merce for a while, went man purse. And it's big in Asia. I don't believe it was a good call. I think we discussed it with him. You guys he, both wear backpacks, so let's, I do we, wear, let's I, unpack that. I like, will wear a backpack with a three-piece suit. I will. It's true. No, that solved a lot because I'm often carrying a book and you know a wallet and a phone and backpacks give you all the room you need. And, they're, and no, we haven't solved it. I mean, women have solved something. Leo, I'm going to say they've, they're onto something that we need to get onto. Yeah. 
look like we're in the third grade. Because, as you know, my dad said to me when I was in high school and I was looking for a backpack, he said, in my day, we weren't all affecting like we were hikers. You know, they had book straps and things right. like that. And he's right. like, when did all men be hikers all the time? And I was like, it wow. it was just easier to carry. Yeah. So to someone who doesn't pay a lot of attention to women's fashion, I know you as a bag designer, but you've designed other things. Yes. Is it weird to you that you've, am I right that you're like most known for your bags? No, that is true. And is that weird? Like that wasn't the game plan, it sounds like. So... Once we saw that bag take off in a way that that clothing that I was making by hand with one other man uh, was not taking off, mm-hmm. I think we just said, let's hitch our wagon to this star and see how far it can go. And then once we have notoriety and people respect the brand, then we can go back to clothing. So I don't mind that that's my calling card. Is there though a kind of a hierarchy in, in fashion? I feel like there's something... You remember that part in Zoolander where David Duchovny's like, oh, hand models are the smart ones and like male models are the dumb ones. Like, yes. I feel like bag designers are kind of like the smart, cool ones. And like like clothes designers are like, there are a lot of them and it's sort of, you and know, wishy-washy and well, they're owned by corporations. I would break it down further. I would say the people that design more expensive, less commercial stuff in my industry are allotted as the geniuses mm-hmm. and the people that employ a lot of people and have big revenue are just kind of like, meh, she's commercial. That's so, not so fair. You're, so you're the genius en route to selling out. Is that accurate? Correct. That's amazing. <laughs> but that's, it's, the best, that's the best life plan So the ever. twisted thing about that is like, but if you make affordable things, right. you're not a genius. Right. The, but you've actually allowed a lot of people to have your stuff. And, right. there's, and contributed to the economy and yes, lots <laughs> of things. Nah, it's I, overrated. I want to be in my atelier making one of a kind genius. pieces. That's right. Not long ago, I read a memoir by a long haul trucker. And it's a great book. And one of the in one of the parts, he, so he moves um, furniture. He's a he's a furniture mover. And he was talking about the hierarchy when you're at the truck stop, where like the people who like haul commodities are at the top. Like if you're hauling oil, you're the man. And then at the very bottom are what they what he does, the bed bugs, who are the people who move like beds and dressers and stuff. And in between are the people who do like Walmart. <laughs> it was just funny that like there's a whole packing order. You can't go talk to those people if you do these things. Every industry, yes, we're they at the all top. Have it. We're at the top of the podcasting hierarchy. Definitely. Uh, So tell us about your work with the Women's March. So the first Women's March, I got a call and I was asked, can you provide us with a uniform? We all want to just represent uh, one look. And it was, I think, three days before the march. And so gave them shoes, gave them bags. I was so proud when I saw, I'm forgetting who was arrested. Uh, One of the co-founders was arrested, like wearing my bag. And I was like, yes. Nice. the next year, uh, I said, I want to do more with you guys. Um, the next year, I opted out of having a show. I was nine months pregnant, and I was like also feeling that I was very tone deaf with everything that was going on. And so I said, hey, I want to do something bigger and better with you guys. Uh, can I donate a lot of money to your cause? And in exchange, you let me profile you for this campaign I want to launch. So we profiled a bunch of the women um, on our website, told their stories, but also because of the attention it got, it was in a billboard in Times Square, rotating, showcasing them. And then we were able to donate, um, I think, over a thousand books, uh, right, march on to libraries so that no one ever forgets like what they did. So, so that was that. And then I'm not really associated with it anymore. Have you paid attention to the, the news about the anti-Semitism? In that the is mar- why. That's why. So yes. what did you you sent them an, an email saying, take me off stuff? Or what do you do in that case? So I actually saw everything that was happening and I was devastated um, and feeling sort of like, how could you stand for so much and then have a carve out for 
Jews. Um, and so I called one of the previous organizers or co-founders and I said, what do I do? Like I embraced you wholeheartedly and I, this was my thing. And now this is real weird. And she's like, you know what? I'm walking away and you should too. Wow. And I was like, do I need to tell anybody else that I'm walking away? And she's like, nope, just walk away. See if they chase after you. They won't. <laughs> so that was it. So I just put my work into still supporting women and, you know, women's rights and all that. But it's just not associated with the march. It kind of sucks so bad <clears throat> that like this had to happen. It's more than sucky. It's like it's it's like you can't even believe that you could be a part of something that's so incredible and then the top well i shouldn't be surprised right the tops are broken at a lot of places yep that's right nothing surprises us do an end on a happier note than that <laughs> someone ask her a happy question that's amazing i mean that's i, I think this is yeah right we'll but play violin i just want to violin you out for, like um, what are you working on what are you working on now that you're excited about well, I have a podcast. <sighs> How can we hear it? What's it called? It's called Super Women with Rebecca Minkoff. Uh, I interview women who have done incredible things, uh, all different walks of life, from a chef to a CEO to a writer. Um, I record here at Argo Studios. Argo Studios, home of the Jews. Uh, <laughs> and also I founded something called the Female Founder Collective, which is a network of over 4,000 women-owned businesses. Um, first and foremost, we have a seal. So just like you turn over to see if your food is kosher. You can see if it's... You can see if it's woman-owned. Woman-owned. Wow. Um, and then we also have a Slack, Google, Facebook group where all these women connect and share resources and help each other just, you know, cut through a lot of the crap you learn as an entrepreneur with like, here's here's the way you should do this. So if people... I assume you talk about it on your podcast sometimes and direct yep. people to it. So if people want to start with the podcast, let's say, what's an episode? What's a starter episode? We'll get you hooked. Ooh, uh, me and uh, Bozema St. John. Who's Bozema St. John? She is the CMO of Endeavor, but she was the first uh, black female C uh, CMO of Uber during when they brought in crisis management. Wow. They were like, uh-oh, we're not behaving so nice. Let's bring her in. So that's how I think people became aware of her. And then she's like, you guys are fucked. I'm out. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah. St. John out. St. Yes. John out. Yes. Uh, Rebecca Minkoff, podcaster, designer, non-college graduate. Yes. Becky. <laughs> what? Becky. Becky. Thank you so much for being our Jew of the Week. Thank you for having me. Hallelujah. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew, it is time for some pod biz. 
Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash uomember and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. So Tablet shares offices with a literary agency, and one of the agents, Julia Cardin, represents a writer named Moriel Rothman Zecker. And she gave me a copy of his book, Sadness is a White Bird. And she would come up to me about every, you know, once a week or so, and she would say, have you read the book yet? Have you read the book yet? It's really, really great. Have you read this book yet? And so I'd say, you know, it's on my list. It's on my list. I'll get to it. So, you know, she really, really followed up with me a lot. And she said, you know, he would be great on Unorthodox. you got to read it. you got to have him on. I finally read the book. And I'm excited that we finally have Moriel on the show. Sadness is a White Bird is a story of Jonathan, an American teenager who is very excited to move to Israel and join the IDF. When he gets to Israel, he befriends a Palestinian brother and sister named Laith and Nimreen. And knowing them and, and hanging out with them sort of uh, complicates his, his understanding of Israel and also complicates his decision to join the IDF and his looming uh, draft date. So Moriel is going to start with a reading of from the book and we'll go to the interview from there. So here Jonathan is walking, he's walking with his, with Lathan Nimreen in Haifa. And across the street, he sees a young Jewish Israeli kid with an M16 slung across his chest. And this sort of sends him into this spiral of strange reverie, um, remembering his days at, at what is called in this book, at Camp Samaria. The casual power of this Jewish kid, just a year or so older than myself, walking the streets of the Jewish state, holding a slender gun, his posture cocked forward, was more or less the essence of what I'd dreamed about since the incident with Joey von Ribbentrop in middle school and onward through Camp Samaria, which, I'd told myself, had sort of felt like living in a miniature Jewish state for a month. We had Jewish cooks and Jewish kids like Cy Sudfeld, well-endowed enough to be a porn star, and Jewish girls with beautiful Jewish breasts, which three of the girls flashed for me and Cy on the second-to-last night of camp, under the Jewish stars by the Jewish lake, in exchange for me and Sai kissing each other on the mouth with tongue, which I minded far less than I pretended to, the kissing Sai part. If dinky little Camp Samaria was so full of possibility, I could barely imagine what sort of redemption lay in wait in the actual land of milk and honey and oozies and bamba and eucalyptus groves and khaki and tragedy and redemption. I never fought Joey von Ribbentrop, 
Never felt, again, so directly the need to, but throughout high school I imagined recurrently the feeling of returning to Everbrook after completing three years of service in the IDF. Everyone would be able to tell how I'd changed, how my skin had tanned, how my body had grown hard, rippling with lean muscle. During my service, I imagined, I'd have made friends who were as close as brothers, plucked from the melting pot of multi-ethnic Hebrew warriors, tough Moroccans and rowdy Ashkenazi kibbutzniks and agile Ethiopian immigrants, all Jews. While some of our platoon mates might have gone off to Bangkok or the Himalayas after our discharge, my friends would accompany me back to the United States of America to finish my unfinished business. We'd make quick work of Joey and his friends, sending them into cowering submission simply by looking at them, and then we'd roam all around the country searching for bona fide neo-Nazis and Klansmen and other assorted bigots. We'd wear the Star of David on silver chains around our necks in the open for everyone to see. Maybe we'd have tattooed the Hebrew word chai, life, onto our battle-scarred shoulders. When we'd be confronted by the packs of roving anti-Semites, as we inevitably would be, we would beat them expertly, savagely, gracefully, and they would howl with pain and whimper in fear, fear of us, the Jewish fighters. Once we'd finished in the USA, we'd fly over to Europe and repeat, we'd probably start in Greece. This sense, it's such an American sense of like seeing Israel as as strength and power. And I'm so curious, you know, was that true to your experience? Because you grew up here and then went there, right? That's right. So when this book started off, for me, it started off as a sort of counterfactual autobiography, which is to say, I took a character whose biography, who, who the, you know, the sketches of which resembled mine, but then I tweaked some important details. And so Camp this... Camp Samaria? Camp Samaria. <laughs> I went to Camp Judea just to, <laughs> to pull the curtain back on that one. Um, this scene in particular was a sort of familiar scene to one I'd imagined again and again as a 14 and 15-year-old, one of the only Jews in my small Ohio hometown, um, frustrated at the sort of anti-Semitic jokes and snickers and... Sort of the taunting that you would the get. The taunting, you know, that I would get, or not even that I would get so much, but that would be around, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't always step up to silence it. So you were like, if I go to Israel and fight, I will come back and be able to sort of like put put a stop to this. Precisely. And more than that, I think every time I would see, see, feel individually emasculated or individually not strong enough or like my arms were too skinny or my nose was too big or, you know, anything like that, I would think, you know, at least there's Israel. At least there's Israel where collectively I am part of something that is muscled and strong and manly and tall standing and which these sort of goyesha bullies roaming the high school of my southwest Ohio landscape wouldn't stand a chance against. Um, and, and I think I knew, even as I was thinking, you know, I was a smart kid, I was an aware 13-year-old, I read a lot of books, I knew even as I had these thoughts, there was something strange about them, something overly fantastical about them, something perhaps even problematically flattening of all sorts of realities about them. But there was still this deliciousness to this fantasy of, of enlisting in the IDF, of becoming strong, of becoming part of a collective strength, and then using that collective strength to fight the historical enemies of the Jewish people, um, which for me, interestingly, always had much more to do with European and Western anti-Semites than it did Arabs. So what happens in reality for you? In Moriel's reality? Yes, in your real life. (laughs) So in my real life, I moved back to Israel when I was 17, just like Jonathan did. Um, I fell in with a group of 
Israeli friends, just like Jonathan did. We spent our weekends, you know, going on hikes and hanging out on the beach and sitting on upturned Gold Star beer crates and talking about which berets are the sexiest and how many push-ups you need to do to be ready for this tryout and how fast you need to run to get into that unit. What we never talked about, you know, the, the, the distance of our paradigm was the end of basic training. We never talked about what happens the day after basic training. It was all about what you do and how, tra how training is and how hard it is and how cool you look when you come back on the weekends and how sexy you'll be when you've you know, already been through four months of training or after advanced training or you're a paratrooper and you jump out of the planes. And, and no one, none of us were discussing what you'd actually do on a day-to-day -day basis. You know. And neither was I. It wasn't that I was sort of sitting there and raising these, because I didn't know either. I wasn't raising these ethical dilemmas of occupation and of morality. I was basically ready to enlist myself, but my parents encouraged me to try a year of college in the States. Um, so I tried a year of college and started learning Arabic. And when things started to shift was actually that summer. Um, the summer after my first year of college, I had an opportunity to live in a Palestinian village inside of Israel. Um, for about a month, um, I was nominally teaching English, but mostly living with a family, being hosted, sort of getting to know the language, getting to know people there, getting to know this place that for me had been almost entirely foreign, right? Growing up in a Jewish-Israeli town, most of what we knew about the nearby Arab-Palestinian towns inside Israel even was that they that you could get good hummus and get your car fixed for cheap at the outskirts and that during the intifada they throw, threw stones and burned tires. And that was about it. That was about as far as Arabs and Palestinians made their way into my consciousness, into our collective consciousness as high schoolers, which was as members of the service industry or as sort of some vague, generalized, terrifying threat. Um, and then only this year later, when I was living in this village and living with people there and getting to know folks, not on the sense of like, there are good people and bad people, which is essentially a nonsensical statement because there aren't good people and bad people. There are people and there's Mahmoud, who's super boring when he talks. And there's, you know, Marwa, who is fascinating the way she like goes into the nuances of... I don't know, butterflies. And then there's Rihan, who's an amazing scribe. And then there's Mariam, who is clever. And then there are these things, the way you describe people, the way you describe, describe your friends, the way you describe peers, the way you describe your neighbors. You don't think about, like, are they good or are they bad? They are Palestinians or they are Jews. You think, like, you know, this person is charming and this person is odd and this person is irritating and this person is frightening and this person is hilarious. And they become people. And suddenly, you know, it's, it's one of these hyper banal but also incredibly deep realizations you know it's to say people are people everywhere is probably the most trite thing one could say but actually to feel that is probably the least trite thing one could feel so what happens do you enlist so, so i do not so eventually i moved back to israel after graduating college as i'd planned to but my politics had begun to shift and really there was this image that kept on coming back for me um of patrolling the streets of Hebron or overseeing demolitions in the South Hebron Hills. And then being back on the weekend, back in Israel, and meeting my host family from Deir al-Assad on a bus, um, holding my rifle, wearing my uniform. And, and I wondered if I could look them in the eye, and I wondered if I could fully justify um, that decision to go serve in the occupied territories, even knowing what I'd come to know about what that really means. And the answer I ultimately came to was no, was that I couldn't justify it to them. And therefore, I couldn't justify it to myself. So how, what does it mean to not serve? 
Is so that an option? It's There are all sorts of ways of doing that. Sometimes there are ways of um, getting out silently. What I did was a sort of a very theatrical version of not serving, which is to say I chose to not enlist publicly. I spent a short amount of time in military jail. I wrote about it. I, you know, talked about it. And it was a sort of an act of political theater using my own circumstances in order to sort of underscore a political point. So wait, so you were a conscientious objector? I was a conscientious objector. Um, and how long did you go to jail for? So two stints of 10 days. And then after the second stint, I requested a mental health exemption and successfully got it a few days later. So what is it like being in military jail? So that actually does weave its way into the book a lot. Because I thought, so I thought at first I'd write a nonfiction book, I'd write about some of these stories, but I was bored, frankly. You know, I told these stories already. I'd already gone through what I thought and what I believed and how I changed my perspective and what people said to me and what I said to people and what it was like. And and I was bored of telling those stories again and again and again and getting the same responses again and again and again. And also troubled on the level in which it felt like friends and family members and strangers felt judged by my action, which is to say that they felt that there was some sort of implication that I, w- that I saw myself as more moral or more ethical or more good. And that wasn't true on the deepest level. I didn't, see, I, don't, I didn't and certainly don't see myself as more moral or more ethical or more decent or less violent. It was just a series of circumstances that led me to this juncture. But I know very well that had it not been for 15 different circumstances, I would never have arrived at that juncture. I was excited to enlist along with all of my other 17-year-old friends. And so therefore, f- so far be it for me to cast judgment on my friends, on my peers, on my countrymen and my colleagues who did enlist, who did serve in the occupied territories. And so for me, the idea of writing this book started out from this point of saying, not only can I empathize or sort of imagine on a you know, vague theoretical level what one's life might look like if they go down this other path, I want to deeply embody this path. I want a first-person narrator who resembles me in a lot of ways and who, if I'd met when I was 17, I think we would have been very good friends. Um, but who makes a different decision than mine, not because he's worse or less ethical or less brave, but because his life is different. Um, and so, and there are, there are sections of the book in which Jonathan does end up in military jail for different reasons than my own. And I won't go too deeply into those, I think, in order to avoid spoilers. But the sections in this book are, are partial reflections on, on the strangeness of those few weeks. So speaking of casting judgment, uh, the Jewish Book Council named you a finalist for the Debut Fiction Award. And I'm so curious if you were surprised to be honored by a, you know, a, a traditional Jewish institution for a book that is deeply critical of a lot of things about Israel and also what the response from the Jewish response has been to the book more broadly. So I was grateful. I was very grateful for the, for the nomination. Um, and I think grateful for the culture of reading Because I think as I see this book, I don't know that I would call it critical per se, Um, because I think that the difference for me between a novel and a work of political nonfiction is, is the role of polemic. I think that my first draft was much more polemical. It was trying to say, you know, here's some things I think, and here's where I'm going to use the fictional character to say those things, and here's where Jonathan's going to say a thing that I that I actually, it's my monologue, and I'll stick it into his character's voice, and then, you know, Nimreen will say something else. It's another monologue of my own, and I'll stick it into her character's voice. And then the later process of editing, of revising, of sort of turning this from a work of polemic into a work of genuine fiction was to scrape out all those parts and to throw them away for the most part, because... Characters' dialogue is not supposed to represent some grand political idea. It's supposed to be how these characters would talk to 
to live, to write as if they are true characters, true people living. Um, so, you know, so the words two-state solution and one-state solution and so on and so forth never appear in this book because that's not how... 18-year-old yeah. Jonathan and 19-year-old Lathan and Marine. That's not what they're going to spend their days talking about. They are going to talk about poetry and pot smoking and their grandparents' um, narratives. So those do filter their way into the book. But different than my nonfiction writing, which often sought to convince or to persuade, this book doesn't have a singular agenda like that. And, but, and I was appreciative. I, I have been appreciative of readers from a fairly broad range of political views abilities and willingness to to grapple with this book because I don't think there are no caricatures in this book there is no individual who's a caricature and there is no viewpoint that is caricatured and so I want this book it was crucial for me that this book that even someone whose politics are going to fall very different than my own on the on the sort of Jewish political map still can find points in this book where they feel their narratives are represented or there are characters with whom they identify or points even in which they see resonance, even if the decisions that Jonathan makes are different to their own, or even if the story Lathan Nimreen's grand- grandmother tells is upsetting for them to read, or even if the way Nimreen and Lath talk about Israel is something that they wouldn't usually spend their time reading. Um, I hope that fiction o- offers a door. So before I let you go, I have to ask the question that writers hate, which is, what are you working on now? <laughs> I'm working on another novel. This one's set in very, very different circumstances, mostly orbiting around the world of Yiddish poetics in the 1930s. But there are strains of similarity and there are certain themes that I find myself pulled to again and again of friendship and identity and belonging and lack of belonging and so on and so forth. Well, I can't wait until Julia comes by my desk every (laughs) week with your new book. Moriel, thank you so much for being here. How can people find out more about you? So... This book, Sadness is a White Bird, is in stores and online everywhere. Um, my work in general is collected on a, a website titled The Leftern Wall. So L-E-F-T-E-R-N wall.com. And I'm also on Twitter at Moriel underscore R-Z. And I think that's about it. Moriel rothman Zacker, thank you so much for being with us on Unorthodox. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Some fine letters this week. You people in the J. Crew are in fine, fine literary form. Dear Unorthodox, a listener writes, stop. Every time you guys do the slow-mo bit, I cringe. That's my son's name, which I not so secretly hate. This was a major point of contention when we were discussing what to name him. My husband insisted on calling him Shlomi after his Zadie, whom he lovingly remembers. I relented in the end. I mean, how can I argue with a dead grandparent? But Shlomo. And there's no cute nickname to it. I considered Saul, but my son's not 80 years old with suspenders. Liel, congrats on your new middle name. 
I love my new middle name. Name withheld. Wait, name withheld. <laughs> Shlomo withheld. I I wear Shlomo with pride. So, what do you have any suggestions for this other Shlomo? I think you lean into the Shlomo. I think you go full Shlomo, no nicknames needed. You just be like, you know what my name is? It's Shlomo. And the thing about it's the coolest name. It was a king and a fine one at that, and I'm proud of it. The Shloshi. thing, the th- Shloshi. The thing about. This kid, this woman's son, is he's probably like six one, curly red hair, blue eyes, totally right. ripped. Yeah. He like rode for Boston University. Right. He's wearing, like wearing Lululemon pants he, and you know, because I've told you guys about how the best looking man I ever knew was Nimrod Weiselfish. Yeah. It was like well, we the know. absolute Adonis of the Greater Hartford <laughs> private school scene <laughs> in the late eighties, early nineties. Have we located him? Someone knows Freaking him, right? We heard from someone. You know, I've located him and there's like one web hit. He was living in Hong Kong surfing. Damn but you, Weiselfish. No one actually reaches out and says they know him, but he exists. I didn't make him up. And I think this guy is like Shlomo Buttenweezer yeah. and he's gorgeous. And he's amazing. Shlomo Buttigieg. Slow but I also think, look, I as someone with, you know, a, a tough name, a complicated name, a complicated name, it builds character. And so I think if your name is Shlomo and it's hard to, you know, people don't get it, it's hard to pronounce, maybe sounds weird to certain people. It thickens your skin, oh, this which guy's is always amazing. helpful. It's like a boy named Sue. It's a boy <laughs> named Shlomo. <laughs> That's exactly right. Shalom, friends. I hope everyone had a jolly good Passover. I look forward to hearing something in the next episode. A question you maybe can help with. I've been in contact with my local Jewish community recently toward the beginning of the conversion process. All very good. I will be attending adult learning classes for those converting, as well as group Shabbat dinners and Hebrew classes to freshen my memory up. In the spirit of your new book on Jewish foods, what does the unorthodox crew recommend that one bring to a Shabbat dinner where each person contributes one dish? Oh, wow. Thank you for making my favorite podcast. Yours truly, David Evans. So – David Evans, David Bell and Evans, um, I actually took this question to a few people who were involved in the book. I mean, the answer has to be pcha. Well, yes, jelly but how else foot. to ingratiate yourself with your new community than that is by how bringing you say, hey, a guys. legitimate jelly cow's foot? Um, so Alana Newhouse, who edited the book, says hamanados, which are these Sephardic uh, slow-cooked eggs. She says, very technically, they're a Shabbat morning food, but that slight issue is offset by how easy they are to make. And by the fact that they don't really require fancy or fancily kosher ingredients. Gabriella Gershenson, who helped us with the online project and edited the recipes for the book, has a bit of an easier suggestion. She says, a loaf of challah would be my suggestion. No one minds having leftovers for French toast the next morning. And I think that's mine, too. Like, pick up a nice challah from your local supermarket. You don't have to make it yourself. Everyone always likes the person who shows up with, with carbs. I think that's I think that's totally that's that's about right. Either totally that or fair. some or some sort of like really good babka. Yeah, I was gonna say, you know, go with a really strong sinful dessert because there'll probably be some like cellophane wrapped cookies that someone bought in the kosher section of the bakery there. Right. If you show up with something that's just sinfully good, whether like you made it yourself, chocolate babka, yeah, yeah, or like you know a, a really rich flourless chocolate cake, you know uh, that that would be our advice. Anyway, David, um, Mazel Tov on the journey you're embarking on, and you know let us know. Uh, how it works out. Either that or two pounds of raw meat wrapped in white paper. Here you go. <laughs> with, but with a slow cooker under your arm, right? With, right? Or with an Instapot. Hi, gang. I have two questions about the names episode um, that um, weren't answered in that uh, podcast. Uh, the first one is, why are names like Goldberg or Bernstein considered Jewish? Um, are they also Jewish names in their home countries? I always thought only that, that only names um, derived from Cohen and Levi were the only true Jewish names. 
And my second question is, are there Jewish first names? I've met a few, uh, I, I've met few Iras or Sadies that were not Jewish. Cherished listener, these are some fine questions, and no doubt we will get mail amplifying our answers to the questions. Correct. So allow me, allow me to tackle these. Uh, so first of all, um, you're onto something with the first part where you say, "How? Why Goldberg, Bernstein? Why? You know, why would anything beyond Cohen or or Levy be a Jewish name?" The reality is, Jews, like most humans, didn't have last names for most of a Western and indeed world history. Um, you were, you know, Leopold, or you were Shlomo, and you were Shlomo, son of whoever. But last names are something that uh, Jews were required to get uh, by the European princes and duchies and, and whatnot. It was a, a, a royal administrative thing. And then there were certain names that we got. So because some of us might have been in the diamond industry, we got last names like Diamant or Dimenstein or whatever. And people who worked with gold or who were rumored to work with gold got names um, like that. And then they often got names related to the town they were from. So Oppenheimer, well, Jews who were from around Oppenheim often ended up Oppenheimers, but they're Gentile Oppenheimers as well. So there's a whole history, but it basically comes from the fact that these things were slapped onto us in the you know, 15th, 16th century and onward, and that certain names got slapped onto Jews because of their occupations or the towns that they were from. So that's my amateur, but I think largely correct uh, answer to that. Now, the first name one is actually much, much, much more interesting. I've talked about this a little bit on the show before. Certain first names that we think of as Jewish, like Milton or Sydney, were actually attempts at high English names, because if you think, what is Milton? Well, just the greatest English language poet ever. So people who wanted their boys to sound super, you know, regal, like they were going to grow up to speak, you know, grandpa was Shlomi from the old country, from the shtetl, and he moved here and, and he wanted his son to grow up to go to Harvard. What are you going to name him? But Milton or Sidney, another great English poet. Uh, so a lot of those names, you know, come out of these assimilationist impulses, but then Jews were the only ones using them by that point. So we think of them as Jewish names. This leaves open the greatest question of all, the question of Ira. Because Ira is a name with no yichus, no breeding, no— Great title for a novel, by the way. No the question of Ira. There's no one in history who said, ah, the way to exalt your son's future prospects is by naming him Ira. Now, it did. it's an English language name. It used to be a waspy name. You will still sometimes meet an old wasp named Ira. But mid-century Jews did love naming their sons Ira. Is that and because they hoped they would have an IRA? <laughs> It was Ira Roth. Yeah, <laughs> or it was Ari backwards. I mean, that's the other, you know, thing worth noting ah! as like they were signaling in their secret conspiratorial way. They wanted him to be an Ari. But Ira, you know, but Irving, Milton, Sydney, you're talking about high Anglo names that we now think of as Jewish. Um, then a lot of women's names were given to sound super American. So in my mother's generation, a lot of Jewish Carols and Lindas and Barbaras and Judys, uh, because that just seemed super American. So that was, you know, what you wanted for your for your daughters. But it still leaves open the question of why Ira? And um, if anyone would like to answer, I think that's one for the J Crew. Our audience is going to have some good theories on that one. They can write to us as you can all write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or leave us a message at 914-570-4869. The question of Ira. That's a dirty novel. That's a dirty Harold Robbins. It is. It's like a Philip Roth novella yeah. that got discarded, that never made it through. The Question of Ira. Mm-hmm. 
Today's the day for me to do solo interviews and really, really shut you guys out in preparation for my spinoff show titled TBD. Um, I sat down with Gretchen Rubin. She is a podcaster. She's an author of The Happiness Project and The Four Tendencies. Her podcast is Happier with Gretchen Rubin, and her latest book is Outer Order, Inner Calm. It's a Marie Kondo-esque guide to the powers of straightening up your life. Her version is more about productivity and living your best life, and we chat a little bit about that. It's very exciting because I'm a fan of your show, and hearing your voice actually like is calming <laughs> to me. Good. So I, I devised Excellent. this whole interview just as a way that you could speak directly to me. Oh, good, 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 good. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about outer order, inner calm, and how, you know, purging my closet or my kitchen cabinets will make me a happier person? Well, you know, I've been reading and writing and talking to people for a long time about happiness and human nature. And I, I kept noticing and being surprised by the degree to which people are just fired up when the conversation turns to things like outer order and decluttering and organizing. You know, we can all agree that in the context of a happy life, something like a crowded coat closet or a messy desk is inconsequential. And yet over and over, people tell me that they just feel like when they get control over the stuff of their lives, they feel more in control of their lives generally. And again, it's totally disproportionate. Like the boost in energy and cheer that I got from cleaning out my utility closet is just so far beyond any rational explanation. So I really wanted to focus in on that relationship and think, okay, why is this? And then given that that's true for most people, not everybody, but for most people, how do you create it and how do you maintain that outer order that does seem to punch above its weight? It does feel pretty revelatory. I know it's simple, but the idea of like when I walk into my apartment and it's clean, it feels calming to me. It is. And it's just, there are all kinds of metaphors people use. They feel lighter, like they've lost 10 pounds or like a backpack is off their back, or they feel like, like there's more light. Like they literally feel like there's more light coming into the room. And often there is more light. Cause like you'll have a bunch of stuff, you know, in your office, you have a bunch of stuff like lined up on, on the windowsill or something. And so it's literally blocking out your light. Um, or there's, you know, there's space on the shelf where you can see the back of a closet or you can see the back of a cabinet. And a lot of it is, you know, we're eliminating things that are that are nagging us or draining us. Like, I have all this stuff I need to do something with it or, I, you know, I need to decide, should I keep that thing or give that thing away? Where does that thing go? I don't even really know what that thing is. Like, what is where does that cord go to? I have no idea. Like, these are all things that are nagging at us. And so if you get them resolved, then you just, you you eliminate all of that noise in your head. So what are some of the guidelines you have? Like, what are the things that we are not giving away or not getting rid of that you think we should be? Well, I think the great test is, do you need it? Do you use it? Do you love it? If you don't need it, use it or love it, like, then why do you have it? You know, and this is the thing, like, I just, we have the giant metal uh, mixing bowl. And I, I was up on a high shelf, so I kind of forgot we had it. And then I looked at it and I'm like, oh, we've got this giant metal mixing bowl. And I thought, well, should we keep it? We don't need it. We don't use it. We don't love it. And then I thought, well, but it seems so useful to have a giant metal mixing bowl. Surely that would come in handy. And I'm like, and yet I think we've had this thing for more than 10 years and we've never used it. So how useful is it? We don't need it. We don't use it. We don't love it. That's the thing to get rid of. Or you can ask yourself, does this energize me? Because sometimes there's things that just, you know, they just do their little job. You know, and you're, you're like, well, it energizes me to have these things around. And then, but things that are draining, um, you're like, oh, that yoga mat, does that energize me or does that drain me? You're like, oh, that drains me. Because I look at that and I think, oh, remember I was going to do all that yoga, but I don't do yoga. 
but I still have the mat. I could do the yoga, but I don't do the yoga. It's like, okay, that thing is just draining you. That actually is, that really happened to me. But I feel like oh. so many of our possessions are <laughs> aspirational. Yeah, I was like, I'm not going to do yoga. I should just get rid of this. But well, see, that's abandoning a project and an abandoning a fantasy self. And that is what's hard. It's not getting rid of the yoga mat. It's releasing the idea of I will do yoga. It's like me with my leather pants. What was I thinking? Why did I have a pair of leather pants? Like that's the fantasy self. Oh, maybe I would wear these. No, I won't. Get rid of them. <laughs> you know, you have to let go of it. And then sometimes it also feels wasteful. You're like, I played good money for this. And now I'm just going to turn around and give it away. But, you know, you spend that money the minute of purchase. Like, it's not like you spend less if you hang on to it longer. You just keep somebody else from using it who could put it to good use. I love the idea that releasing possession sort of frees you from the pressure you feel to be that leather pants yes. person. Or like, it's it's either, an, you know, it's it's so, that feels like a real relief. Well, and I think that's why creating outer order often does bring relief is that then you don't, you're not weighed down by kind of the expectations associated with somebody who you really aren't. Um, and that's, it's surprisingly hard because a lot of times we do buy things thinking, you know, we, we do it to kind of express possibilities to ourselves. And, may, and sometimes that's a good thing. You know, sometimes maybe you do want to lean into a new identity and that can be good. But I think you always want the identity to come first and the desire and the need for something to come first. You know, you want to wait until you've like, you've been cooking, you've been cooking, you've been cooking. Now your your knives are not good enough. You need new knives rather than thinking, oh, if I go buy these fancy new knives, then I will cook. You got to wait for the desire to come out of who you really are and what you're evolving identity is. If you try to just prepare for that identity, a lot of times that stuff just never gets used because it's just not really you. Yeah, that's true. So this is a Jewish podcast, so I have to bring up guilt, which is the like oh, how yeah. I feel, <laughs> why I think I keep so many of my possessions. I'm like, oh, you know, my aunt handed me this down or something. This I got this yeah. from this person and I'm attached yeah. to it. And like, I don't actually want these things. Help, well, how do Jews do this? <laughs> how do Jews do this? Um, well, you know, I think for everyone, one of the things that's important is to respect the emotion that is tied to the possession and not just say, like, I don't need this, but to say, this is really important to me because it reminds me of my aunt. And my aunt was very dear to me. So these things are precious to me because they're associated with her. But acknowledging that I don't need all these things to help me remember my aunt. I have my memories of her. Maybe I want one thing. You know, what would that one thing be? So like, let me, I'll take an example from my own life, my grandfather who's dead. So I could have taken his roll top desk. I could have taken his favorite chair. I could have taken his grandfather clock because he collected clocks, or I could have taken his pocket watch because he was an engineer on the Union Pacific Railroad and his pocket watch was very important to him. So guess what I picked? The pocket watch? I picked the pocket watch because it's like everything was equally imbued with his spirit, but the pocket watch is small and fits on a bookshelf. You know what I mean? Like that's a little thing. But it does the job of a desk. It's not, you know, I don't need the whole big desk. And if you have a lot of mementos, whether it's mementos from a trip or like boxes and boxes of children's artwork or hand-me-downs from someone who's died, you know, they get to the, that, that emotion gets diluted. And then there's so much stuff to deal with that a lot of times we just shove it in a corner and don't deal with any of it. If you go through and you carefully curate something and you say, I want to saturate this with meaning. This is, this is the, the, the object that is going to hold this memory for me. Then it can be very precious and it's manageable and you can display it and you can enjoy it. 
you know, if there's stuff everywhere, you know, if you've got five big boxes of photos and half of them, like people have their eyes shut and half of them are like exactly like the other half and half of them are like, I don't even know who that person is. It's no fun to even go through them. But if you have a small manageable one and they're all good photos, then people will actually say like, oh, let's sit down and look at the photos. That sounds like fun. So if you want the emotion, it's helpful to remember that it will serve those emotions better if they're carefully curated and probably small in size and few in number, because that's more manageable. And so then we tend to engage with it more. I like that. So to switch books a little bit, um, you've written a lot about the four tendencies. And yes. I took the quiz on your website this morning. I'm an obliger. Oh, okay. Which surprises me not at all. That's the biggest tendency for both men and women. So you're in great company there. That makes sense too. Um, could you explain the four tendencies and how this concept sort of helps us understand ourselves and our behaviors? Yes. So the four tendencies divides people into upholders, questioners, obligers, which is your tendency, and rebels. And what it's looking at is how you respond to expectations, which sounds boring, but it's actually like super juicy. Outer expectations and inner expectations. Outer expectations are like how you respond to something like a work deadline or a request from a friend. Inner expectations are like, I want to keep a New Year's resolution. I want to get back into meditating. That's my re- those are my expectations for myself. Upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations. They meet the work deadline. They keep the New Year's resolution without much fuss. They want to know what other people expect from them, but their expectations for themselves are just as important. Then there are questioners. Questioners question all expectations. Um, they'll do something if they think it makes sense. So they're turning everything into an inner expectation. If they if it meets their inner standard, they'll do it no problem. If it fails their inner standard, they will push back. They resist anything arbitrary, inefficient, unjustified. Then there are obligers, your tendency. Uh, as I said, this is the biggest tendency. Uh, obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. So I got my insight into this tendency when a friend of mine said, I know I would be happier if I exercised. And when I was in high school, I was on the track team and I never missed track practice. So why can't I go running now? Well, it's when she had a team and a coach expecting her to show up. She did. But when she was just trying to go on her own, it was a struggle. And then finally, rebels. Rebels resist all expectations outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. They can do anything they want to do, anything they choose to do. But if you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to resist. And usually they don't like to tell themselves what to do. Like very typically, they would not sign up for a 10 a.m. spin class on Saturday because they're like, I don't know what I'm going to want to do on Saturday. And just the idea that somebody's expecting me to show up at a certain time at a certain place is just annoying. So my issue as an obliger is that it's sort of hard for me to, to take my own initiative and then clean out my apartment. So these sort of all seem to be tied into each other. How do I motivate myself? If you are an obliger, give yourself outer accountability for something that's an inner expectation. So if you're like, I want to clean up my apartment, but I'm just not doing it, you need to create outer accountability. And of course, there are 100 million ways to create outer accountability. You could have a party and tell everybody that you're going to show everybody your whole apartment. Uh, including the back closet and, you know, your bedroom and all that. So you can't just toss everything in a corner. You could um, ask a friend to come over and watch you do it. I I do that often. I beg my friends to let me um, help them clear clutter. And what I find is that often I don't even really do anything. I just sit on the side of the bed and drink coffee and they just sort of mutter to themselves. And what I am is I'm an accountability partner. They're here. I'm there. You know, I'm here to help them. I'll hold open the garbage bag or whatever. 
But they just need somebody there that's like, well, we've got to, I've got to clear clutter because why is Gretchen sitting here? It's like, this is, this is what's happening now. So I'm just an accountability partner. Uh, there's a lot of ways to create outer order, outer expectations once you realize that that is the missing piece. Because sometimes obligers think, well, I just need to whip myself into a frenzy of desire and motivation, and then finally I'll do it. And that just doesn't work for obligers. So Gretchen, you are our Gentile of the week, and I wanted to offer you the opportunity uh, to ask us, well, usually it's me and my three hosts, but today it's just me. If you have any questions, I know you are married to a Jewish person. You probably do know a lot about Judaism at this point. Um, do you have any questions? Well, I guess the one question that has haunted me lately is, from a Jewish perspective, how do you feel about rainbow-colored bagels? Because I saw these things, and I was like, oh my, I cannot accept these. Like, what the heck is that? And is that is that a playful reinterpretation of a traditional Jewish food, or is this like like a travesty that we all have to be like appalled by? Well, so they actually seem gross looking. Like I actually don't want to eat food that is rainbow colored typically because it just seems well, so. That is a good. Apart from everything else, yes, it's not appetizing. It's eye-catching, but not appetizing. That's a very good point. And it's interesting. We had on a food writer a few weeks ago who basically said, you know, I love that that Jewish food is living and, and is is flexible and that people are putting their own spin on it. She's like, so I actually am open to the rainbow bagel, even as, you know, sort of a very cultured food writer. But then yeah. my one of my co-hosts, Liel, actually says that the, the bagel is now like the least Jewish food in America and that we've sort of lost it because now like it's at you know, Brugger's and it's a Panera and people are slicing it the other way. So it totally doesn't matter what they do with it. But yeah, I would actually never eat one. You would never eat one. Just because of all, like, all that food coloring. Yeah. But we decided that we draw the line at like a rainbow colored challah because that's like a sacred bread. Yes. Interesting. <laughs> that's yes. actually part of a Jewish ritual and, and has its roots in, you know, ritual. So bagels are actually like fun. You could have fun with them. Matzah is starting, like the chocolate-covered matzah. I'm like, where are we going with the matzah? Do you think that anyone would tie-dye matzah? That's ins- I never even thought about that. 100%. We will see that next year. We should be, you and I should go into business together and do that. Let's do it. Tie-dye matzah. <laughs> I mean, it's ripe for, you know. It's like, like the Easter like, egg. Yeah, let's stripe it up. Polka dot, you know, or like those, you remember that gum that had the stripes on it? Oh, like, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of leper-spotted looking already. Like it has a beautiful texture and pattern already. They should do a fabric of matzah pattern. Let's take it off the matzah and make a pattern of it, like leopard pattern or polka dot. It's like, because it's beautiful to look at. I'm in. Let's do this. Maybe like Passover 2020, our line of tie-dye Passover leggings. (laughs) Yeah, it's been like utterly uh, divorced from all of its actual meaning and significance. We're just going to market the heck out of it. perfect. No, we won't. Don't really do that. No, we're just joking. Gretchen, thank you so much. Um, Your new book, which our listeners should order, is Outer Order, Inner Calm, and people can learn how to get rid of their stuff and, and get a happier life. Oh, thank you so much. It was so fun to talk to you. So guys, I have a surprise for you. Do you remember Blair Braverman, the Iditarod finisher? The Iditarod Jewess? The Iditarod S. Yes. So 
uh, people in our Facebook group have been very excited about Blair Braverman. She is the second Jewish woman to complete the Iditarod. She's she's 31. She just did it. Um, I caught her very quickly while she was in Alaska training, and I wanted you guys to hear a quick bit of our conversation. Wait, I'll let's do one more time. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Hi, Blair. Hi, Stephanie. Where are you right now? I am at Alpine Creek Lodge in Alaska, which is um, this lodge on the Denali Highway. I'm 60 miles from the nearest town, and I'm just sitting out on the porch looking out over 60 miles of uh, mountains and woods. But yeah, it's the end of the season, so we just finished all our races. My husband, Quince, and I are just sort of waiting for the snow to melt, and then we're going to head on home to Wisconsin. You just completed the Iditarod. That is amazing and incredible. By the way, I hadn't listened to Unorthodox until the Iditarod, and I found you guys and I listened to like 20 episodes in a row while I was watching. <laughs> oh my God, really? So you like listened to podcasts while you go? I did, yeah. I did it for the first 200 miles, and then I suddenly started listening to everything on my phone, which was mostly Unorthodox because I had been looking for Jewish podcasts. And I feel like I know you guys really well, and you were, you were there with me. <laughs> That is amazing. I probably wouldn't have been very helpful if I was actually there. So I think you got the best version of me with you. You kept me awake. So you spent a lot of your time just with dogs, right? That's probably safe to say. We have 31 dogs. 31. And so how many are on a typical team, like in the Iditarod with you? I had 14 dogs with me. And so do you feel like you like need to talk to them? Otherwise you'll go crazy. I'm always chatting with my dogs because I just like, I like them and I like talking to them. But when they're running, they don't actually like that that much. It's a distraction and, and they lose their focus. So I have to, you know, listen to podcasts and pretend that other people are talking to me instead. I mean, mainly you're talking to your lead dog when you're out there because they're the ones making decisions with you. If You know, when you see like kindergartners on a field trip and they're all holding hands, they don't get into trouble. And there's like a teacher on one end of the chain and a teacher on the other end. And just mm -hmm. like, as long as they're all connected, it's okay. That's what I feel like. But I feel like I'm a teacher on one end. And then my lead dog is like the other adult. And then everyone else is like a toddler who wants to get into trouble. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> and so my lead dog and I are sort of always in communication, even if it's not verbal. So who's your leader? My main leader, I have a girl named Peppy, and she ran probably 80% of the race in single lead, which means she was the only lead dog. She did it all by herself. Wow. And so how many miles is the race? I think the official distance is 1,049 miles because Alaska is the 49th state, which just tells you that they actually don't know how long it is. But I think it was close to like 980 this year. Congratulations. That is amazing. Thank you. Thank you. And a lot of our listeners were posting this sort of, there were a bunch of articles about you um, and you being a Jewish I did a competitor and finisher. Everyone was really, really excited. When I finished the Iditarod, it was my rookie year. Some news articles came out that said I was the first Jewish woman, which was exciting. I, I had no idea. And I never claimed to be that because I, I would never purport <laughs> to know the religions of all the other women who have done it. Um, and it is a sport where men and women compete together. And those articles were wrong. But by coming out, they tracked down the actual first woman, whose name is Susan Cantor. And she ran it in 92, I believe. So I'm really excited that she's being recognized now as the first Jewish woman. I want to give her a big shout out here. What I didn't realize was sort of in addition to doing the race, right? There's this other side of it, which is taking care of the dogs, taking care of yourself, having enough food. I mean, it's almost all of your thinking because the dogs take care of the running part, but there is so much other work and so many logistics that go into 
taking care of a dog team over a thousand miles of wilderness. And so that's where my head was almost all the time. If I take care of the dogs, they can do the running. Um, so the challenge for me is how do I take care of them in this very extreme environment? I mean, we spent months preparing. So we were training, I mean, training like you would for the Olympics or something where you're spending like 10 hours a day doing training. You're training the dogs to get them in the best shape of their lives. And at the same time, we're like tracking down, you know, 2000 pounds of different kinds of meat and sawing them into pieces that are like thaw at different temperatures and then like dividing those up to be sent to checkpoints along the way and figuring out what we're going to need for equipment. And in some cases, building that equipment from scratch or making it from scratch because it it may not be something you can just buy from a store. So how did you get into this? I wrote a book about that. It's called Welcome to the Goddamn Ice Cube. I was going to say it, so I'm glad um, but, you did. <laughs> but I grew up in California, and I, when I was 18, I moved to the Norwegian Arctic to go to a um, socialist dog sledding boarding school. Okay. Was that your idea? Yeah, yeah. My parents were very confused. It's part of this um, sort of like level of education that we don't have an equivalent of here. And the idea is that, you know, Norwegian culture, Norwegian society, and they, they fund these schools that um, have free tuition where students can go for a year and study whatever they're passionate about in a non-academic setting without, you know, without thinking about preparation for their future career, without thinking about grades or being evaluated. So you can study dog sledding, in, in my case, or art or music or scuba diving or uh, whatever you want. I mean, there's so many topics. That is amazing. And I hear we are going to be seeing you in Chicago this summer. Yes. Yeah, I'm coming down for an event. Um, where you're going to be a guest on our live show, and I'm very excited. And in between now and then, all of our listeners will have read your book, Welcome to the Goddamn Ice Cube. <laughs> Thank you. Well, uh, we'll see. If, if it's okay with you guys, I could bring a sled dog to the event. It's happened before. That would be more than okay. I'm As I say this, my cat is literally standing on top of me. He knows I'm talking to a dog person. But yes, that would be amazing. And Good luck with everything. And if you, if you I want to know, like, when you come to the live show, I want you to give us, like, your real feedback on the podcast, because I feel like you've listened to it in a very, like, focused environment. And I feel like you probably have some good feedback for us. I'll, I'll see if anything comes to mind. <laughs> okay, Blair, thank you so much and enjoy and good luck with everything. Thank you. I can't wait to see you in, uh, in the Midwest this summer. You know, we have many famous listeners, right? Theresa May, of course, is a devoted listener of ours. Pope Francis. Pope Francis, the Prime Minister of New Zealand. A lot of people. Uh, a lot of people. But Blair Braverman may be uh, my favorite surprise listener to our podcast. And also, let that be a lesson to all of you out there. If you want to win major sporting events, there's yeah. really only one path, yeah. which is listening to an Orthodox. Right. If your kids, if you're like a soccer mom or a tennis dad and your little boy or girl has been underperforming, ask yourself, what podcasts do you have them listening to during their training? <laughs> Serena, we we need to talk. <laughs> uh, Mazel Tov's of the week. Liel Leibovitz, what have ye? I met someone this week. It's about time you settled someone, down. <laughs> someone I've heard a lot about and wanted to meet for a long time. Uh, someone who's wonderful, homicidal, gray and striped. My Mazel Tov this week goes to my new BFF, Cat Stevens Butnick. Cohen. Cohen. You finally met the cat? Cat Stevens we all Butnick. Met the cat. Cohen. We took a photo. And the photo will be on this week's newsletter. So if you haven't subscribed yet, this is a very good reason to do so. Cat has a look of sheer hatred and murder on his face as Stephanie's holding him at arm's length so that he doesn't maul both of us. Uh, and he's really 
a wonderful cat. Huh? That just leaves me having not met the cat. If you want to get the newsletter, write to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Ask for the newsletter in the subject line. You should also rate us on iTunes and you should subscribe to our podcast. I have some Facebook group related shout outs. Evan Bratell writes, my conversion is scheduled for Friday. This morning, I told my four-year-old son on Friday, Papa is going to talk to some rabbis and take a special bath so he can be Jewish like you and daddy. He said, yay, I'm really Jewish. The big book made me Jewish. (laughs) (laughs) The big book. So let's hope that we are not shaming converts, especially if we are their children, but we're excited for Evan. I also wanted to shout out Phyllis Worland. She says, I just wanted to share that I finally got a friend and temple president to listen to Unorthodox. And I sent him a copy of the Haggadah, which he read at which he read from at his second night Seder. Oh, my God. And I gave him the 100 Most Jewish Foods book as a gift. Woohoo. Phyllis. So Phyllis, Phyllis, we love you. Go. The check's in the mail. Yeah. Thank you, Phyllis. I'm going to hand my Mazel Tov over to a listener this week. A nice piece of listener mail from Amy Leitner. She writes, I write to belatedly give huge Mazel Tovs to my friend Rabbi Jeremy Scherer and my fiance, Sean Sawyer, for organizing an incredible and unique Passover Seder in Oakland, California, and around the world. In addition to the 13 people physically at our Seder table, we were joined via video with attendees in Utah, Virginia, and even Sweden who could not attend a Seder locally. Those of us in Oakland took turns passing a phone with the video connection while we read from the Haggadah, and our far-flung friends took turns reading and participating in the discussion as well. While in one way tradition was broken with such heavy use of electronics on Shabbat, I can't think of anything more Jewish than making sure people have a place at the Seder table. Thanks again to Jeremy and Sean for creating something so special, and thanks Unorthodox for being my favorite Jewish podcast. Sincerely, Amy Leitner. Amy Leitner, I think Rabbi Jeremy and your fiance, Sean Sawyer, have created the podcast of my children's dreams. <laughs> it's like they're passing around little little instant G, G chats and Skypes, and maybe there's some Fortnite involved, and Maybe they're vaping. vaping. Maybe they're vaping. And it's it's just Your daughter it, is not there. It's very 2019. No, in all seriousness, I, I agree with you. You have a Heksher from us that was totally uh, kosher for Chag. We think that's amazing. Spreading Judaism around the globe. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. You can ask for our newsletter by writing to unorthodox at tabletmag.com and put newsletter in the subject line. We often come to you live, like our upcoming shows in Queens and Chicago, to book us or advertise with us. Email producer Josh Cross at jcross, that's cross with a K, at tabletmag.com. Follow us on Instagram at Unorthodox Podcast, on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group. And our associate producers are Sarah Fredman Ader and Noah Levinson. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger, our social media machine. Is Elazar Abrams. Our theme music is by Golem online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Yisrael Goldstein of Kabad of Poway, California. And speaking of which, he is organizing a Sher Shabbat this coming Shabbat, Friday night and Saturday morning. He wants everyone around the globe to have someone over for Shabbat dinner and to go to shul. You can find out more at Chabad.org slash Sher Shabbat. We come to you from Argo Studios, who are not yet sure what to think of Joe Biden's candidacy. Shalom, friends. 